Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu driving the show with Anne Musa and Fili Lingwati. Top stories in Africa rise and shine at this hour. South Africa's first ever state visit to Senegal this week is an attempt to boost the low levels of trade between Pretoria and West Africa's political and economic powerhouse. Kenya, Somalis in Eastley residential area east of the capital Nairobi are reportedly fearing violent backlash following last week's Al-Shabaab terrorist attack at an upscale Westgate shopping mall. And in sports news, Springbok coach is satisfied and delighted with his team's performance. But first the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Kenya Security Services have arrested another suspect in connection with the deadly four-day Westgate Mall siege. A top official has declined to say how authorities believe the person was involved in the siege. Kenya has arrested 12 people since the attack, but three have been freed. Interior Minister Joseph Lenku has also declined to say if any of those arrested had been in the mall during the attack. Investigators have also identified a car used by the gunman from the Somali-based Islamist group Al-Shabaab and found it an assortment of illegal weapons. Government officials say 67 people were killed during the incident. The Red Cross says 59 people remain missing, though the government puts that number at zero. Suspected Boko Haram members have killed at least 50 people in a night raid on a college dormitory in Nigeria's northeastern Yobe state. Local residents say the militants entered the College of Agriculture and opened fire on students while they were asleep. Security forces and rescue teams are still recovering the bodies. At least 27 people were earlier killed in two separate attacks by members of Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria. Boko Haram says its aim is to topple the Nigerian government, which it accused of being pro-Western. The group has claimed responsibility for a number of deadly attacks in the country since 2009. Cameroon's 5.4 million voters head to the polls for legislative and local polls today. The poll is set to shore up the strong parliamentary majority of President Paul Bia's ruling party. Bia has been accused of failing to adhere to a regular timetable for elections in order to ensure victory for his own people's democratic movement, the R. DPC party, which holds the majority of seats in the National Assembly and municipal bodies. The terms of the current deputies elected in the last elections in 2007 expired last year, but have been extended on three separate occasions. The government of Sudan has vowed to stand firm on its decision to hike fuel prices despite days of deadly public protests and criticism from within the ruling party and other groups. Sudanese Information Minister Ahmed Bilal Osman says the government knows that unrest will accrue for the cost of fuel goes up, but the reduction of subsidies saves billions of dollars since pumps 
prices rose last Monday. Sudan has been the scene of violence and deadly protests as the government tried to break up the rallies in the south of Khartoum. They spread to other parts of the country, including Niala, the capital of the west of state of South Darfur. Human rights groups say security forces have killed at least 50 people, but the government puts the death toll at 33 and blames unknown gunmen for the killings. South African President Jacob Zuma will start a two-day visit to Senegal today. This in a bid to boost the low levels of trade between the two countries. Zuma will meet with his Senegalese counterpart Macky Sall to discuss strengthening bilateral relations between the two nations and exchange views on critical regional and global issues. Ntebo Mukobo has more. In 2012, the trade between the two countries stood at less than 850 million rand with South Africa exporting just over 830 million rent in goods to Senegal, whereas the Senegalese export to South Africa totaled over 12 million rent. South Africa's ambassador to Senegal, Nkolisi Shulubani, said there is still room for improvement in trade relations. It's a concern for both countries. If you look at Senegal as a stable country, now what is it that we need to begin to do? Is to assist them so that we balance that skewed trade volume completely. During his stay in Senegal, President Zuma is expected to sign an agreement on arts and culture as well as agriculture. Al-Qaeda-affiliated Syrian rebel groups are growing in strength in the country. One of their aims, if President Bashar al-Assad is overthrown, is to forcefully install Sharia law. Syria has always been a country of religious moderation, but this could change if religious extremists take control. Malfred Burke reports. An Al-Qaeda front group in Syria said girls in a village it controls will not be allowed to attend primary education and above unless they wore full Islamic clothing, including a gown, gloves and a veil, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said on Saturday. The news comes just two days after the group, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, torch statues and crosses inside churches in northern Syria and as a number of Al-Qaeda-affiliated rebel groups recently split from the Syrian opposition to strengthen an Islamic front of military rebel groups. Australia insists it provided assistance to an asylum seeker boat that sank off Indonesia, killing at least 29 people. The vessel carrying an estimated 120 asylum seekers sank in in rough seas. Authorities say dozens of passengers are still unaccounted for. Finance Minister Matthias Corman has defended the government's response to the disaster. This after survivors claimed they had repeatedly called Australian authorities to request assistance and were promised help that never came. Kuman says the sinking happened in an area that was under Indonesian jurisdiction, but Australia provided all appropriate assistance. And that's the news for this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. In our top story, South Africa's first ever state visit to Senegal this week is an attempt to boost the low levels of trade between Pretoria and the West Africa's political and economic powerhouse. Last year, the two-way trade between the two countries stood at less than 850 million rand. President Jacob Zuma will fly to Senegal later today on a two-day state visit. He will meet with his Senegalese counterpart, Macky Sall, to strengthen bilateral relations 
relations between the two nations and exchange views on critical regional and global issues. Ndebo Mugobo is in Dakar and filed this report. Although South Africa and Senegal have healthy economic relations, Sina government officials believe there is still room for a lot of improvement in trade relations. Bilateral ties between the two nations received a new impetus after the election of President Macky Sall in 2012. This was followed by an improved trade relations where South Africa exported just over 830 million rent in goods to Senegal, whereas the Senegalese export to South Africa totaled over 12 million rent. And Pretoria's ambassador to Senegal, Nkolisi Shilupane, says this is worrying. It's a concern for both countries. Now, if you look at Senegal as a stable country, it's one of those countries in West Africa where they've never had problems changing government and constitutional. Stable country, now what is it that we need to begin to do? Is to assist them so that we balance that skewed trade volume completely. But use Senegal as an example to say to everybody, when we have a stable country, it prospers, even when we have very little mineral resources. But you can use your people, you can use your agriculture to actually benefit everybody. South African exports to Senegal mainly consist of vegetable products, minerals, beverages and footwear as well as mechanical appliances among others. In return, Senegal exports consist of fish, textiles, cultural artifacts and jewellery. Ambassador Shilubani says now with renewed relations between the two countries, the signing of few bilateral agreements are in the offing during President Zuma's stay in Senegal. This will include an agreement on arts and culture as well as agriculture, insisting that South Africa stands to benefit a lot in the future from its relations with this West African country. Senegal is in West Africa. And Senegal has been stable for all the years since their independence. They might not have all the mineral deposits, but in this place we are going to be able to benefit on a number of spheres. There's a requirement for infrastructure development here. There is need for us as South Africa to bring our own experience in the mining sector. They have huge deposits of phosphate. If you go down to the south, the Kasamak area, huge area that is ready for agriculture. These are the things that we think will actually be able to benefit. The tourism industry, it's one of those areas. Meanwhile, research associated the South African Institute of International Affairs, Tom Willer, said as key countries in their regions, both South Africa and Senegal have a lot to contribute to Africa's development. Historically, when Thabo Mbeki was president, Senegal and South Africa joined in the creation of the NEPAD, and uh, the two leaders got together and came up with what emerged as the NEPAD. South Africa is the champion of infrastructure development in Africa in terms of the NEPAD program, even though it's not talked about every day. And I think to have relations with an important country in West Africa like this is important for South Africa and also for Senegal. President Zuma's state visit to Senegal is the first by the South African head of state. The president will be accompanied by at least seven cabinet ministers, including Minister Maite Nkwana Mashaban of the International Relations and Cooperation, Public Enterprise Minister Malusi Gigaba, and Defense and Military Veterans Minister Nosivio Mapisa Ngakula, among others. The delegation will also include the South African business people who will attend the South Africa Senegal Business Forum with a view to promote and expand trade and investment between the two countries. Ndebu Mokobo, Senegal. 
Kenya, Somalis in Isle residential area east of the capital Nairobi are reportedly fearing violent backlash following last week's Al-Shabaab terrorist attack at an upscale Westgate shopping mall. The Somalis have previously suffered reprisals from other Kenyans over previous terrorist attacks. James Shimanyula spent several minutes in Isle to gauge the mood of its residents, including the Somalis. I'm in Isli, one of the residential areas in Kenya's capital Nairobi. Isli is heavily populated by Somalis, thereby earning the nickname Little Mogadishu. Following Westgate Mall attack, I was curious to find out how people are coping. How are you, my brother? You, you do business here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you see people worried about what happened? Because of Westgate? Yeah. Yeah, people are worried. Somali community, yeah. Why are they <laughs> As Wambugu's laughter faded in the background, I moved on and met up with Amdi Farah Mohammed, a middle-aged Somali wholesale businessman. Are Kenyan Somalis here fearing a backlash from other angry Kenyans over the Westgate attack by Al-Shabaab? No, because everybody knows the people who died, even the Somalis who died in the place, everybody's touched. So there's no need for any panic or anything like that. Mohammed sentiments were shared by taxi driver Masoudi Jama. He told me the Somali community in Isli is going about its business as usual. No, they're not worried. Why are they not worried and the Al-Shabaab are normally Somali? Because the ones who are here know each other. They even know those who did that, they're not Kenyans. So... They are not afraid. Leaving Jama seated in his taxi, I approached a businesswoman, Fatuma Abde. Are you worried? No. Why not worried? We are feeling free. Sitting close to Fatuma was the 24-year-old housewife, Khadija Duale. When you look at the Somalis, are they worried that something may happen to them because of the Al-Shabaab? No, we are not worried. We don't have any problems. 30-year-old computer salesman, Amir Abdisaki, expressed the sadness at the terrorist attack but exonerated easily Somalis from the deadly act. As we know, Somali people, most of them are refugees. A shop cannot be representative for the Somali people. Your friend Sioka, a hotelier who has lived in Isli for more than 30 years, says Somalis are not worried by any backlash. Here, there is no panic. People are not worried. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyu. South Africa's ruling party, the African National Congress, has called on the country's security cluster to tighten immigration laws. This comes in the wake of a terrorist attack on a shopping mall in Kenya's capital, Nairobi. ANC Secretary General Gwede Mandashe made the call following a two-day ANC National Executive Committee meeting in which the situation in Kenya was placed on high was placed high on the agenda. Al-Qaeda-affiliated group Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility for the Westgate shopping mall attack in which 67 people were killed earlier this month. Ike Patla spoke to ANC Secretary-General Gwede Mandashe asking him what the concerns were around the immigration laws. The reality of the matter is that if uh, a disaster that the one witnessed in Kenya happens in Nairobi, Everybody should be worried. It is beginning to be 
a wild trend for terrorist attacks on congested areas. All we are calling upon our security cluster to do is to be on the lookout and be tighter because we are not in another planet. We are in the same planet. Was there input uh, because uh, Mr. Jeff Khadebe is uh, also sits on the NEC? Did he give any input? Not really. Uh, he, he participates in the NEC as a member of the NEC. He doesn't participate as a person and a member of the cluster. There were a number of people in that cluster, almost all of them are in the NEC. But they are members of the NEC in the NEC. Now, let's uh, look uh, at some of the issues uh, that came out of this NEC meetings uh, that uh, you would like to highlight. One of them is the question of the agency for the transformation of the United Nations and the the Security Council, Uh, because it should be more representative. You can't allow five member states to have veto powers that put everybody else who's a member of the UN at their mercy. And we think that that, uh, that transformation is quite urgent. The second one is the need and the mandate given to the president and the delegation that will be going to Addis on the 12th of October to participate freely on the debate about reviewing the membership of African countries uh, in the ICC. Because at this point in time, it is uh, an instrument of cohesion that is subscribing to a principle that is very, very unfair of the, the weak, always wrong, and the strong, always right. The calls for transformation of the UN Security Council have been made before on several occasions, but there doesn't seem to be any movement. It should be continued until there is movement, Ike, because if there is no movement, it means that all the world is at the mess of five countries, and uh, it can be healthy, it can be called a multilateral institution if the whole world is at the mess of five countries. Uh, again, same uh, principle applies to, 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 to the Security Council as we raise it with the ICC of the strong being correct all the time and the weak being wrong all the time. That was South Africa's ruling party, the ANC Secretary General Gwede Mandashe. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. After what has been described as intense diplomacy and negotiations on a response to Syria's chemical weapons program, diplomats at the United Nations have come up with a draft resolution. The representatives of the United States and Russia announced on Thursday afternoon that they have reached a compromise draft resolution on the matter. Concern about this issue was magnified by the reported chemical weapons attack in a Damascus suburb on the 21st of August. A team of United Nations experts who investigated the matter confirmed that the attack had indeed taken place. Derek Mbata reports. Ambassador Samantha Power of the United States told reporters that just two weeks ago, a draft resolution on Syria's chemical weapons program was, quote, utterly unimaginable. She says the overarching goal of the resolution is for the rapid and total elimination of Syria's chemical weapons program. 
This is a class of weapons that the world has already judged must be banned because their use is simply too horrific. This is a fundamental belief shared by the United States, all members of the Security Council, and 98% of the world. The Council discussed a draft resolution that will uphold this international norm by imposing legally binding obligations on Syria, on the government, to eliminate this chemical weapons program. This resolution will require the destruction of a category of weapons that the Syrian government has used ruthlessly and repeatedly against its own people. And this resolution will make clear that there are going to be consequences for non-compliance. Ambassador Vitaly Chekin of Russia says the draft resolution introduced to the Security Council is fully in line with a framework agreement recently reached in Geneva by the top diplomats of Russia and the United States. We believe that it is something which is working very pragmatically and strongly in support of uh, this effort of the elimination of chemical weapons in Syria, in support of the role, a very important role, which is going to be played in that uh, work by the Organization on the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And uh, we are sure that this is something which uh, is uh, giving a good uh, support for this work, which will need to be undertaken by the Syrians, by the Organization on the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, by the United Nations and uh, all the interested parties which are going to be contributing to this process. The ongoing crisis in Syria is one of the major issues that has been raised as world leaders gathered in New York for the annual session of the General Assembly. In his remarks to the Assembly early this week, the Secretary General of the United Nations described the crisis in Syria as the world's biggest challenge to peace and security. Oscar Fernandez Taranko is the UN Assistant Secretary General for Political Affairs. There is no military solution to the political crisis in Syria. The only way out of it, the only way to bring peace back to this country and to its people is through dialogue and political compromises. The Geneva Conference on Syria, on which the United Nations has been working tirelessly for months, intends to launch such a dialogue. Mr. Fernandez Taranko says the UN Secretary General strongly believes that the conference on Syria can be held soon and can be successful in resolving this tragedy. Derek Imbata, United Nations. Af- On to our next story. The third Kimberley Diamond Cup World Skateboard Championship held in South Africa's Northern Cape Province belonged to the youth. 12-year-old Jager Eaton from Arizona and the USA won the Big Air Gap Best Trick category and the South African Am Street Championships was won by 19-year-old Braxton Hain from Durban. Street children from all over the country participating in the Skateboarding for Hope project also met their skating heroes. Anel Haydenlech reports. The organizers of the Kimberley Diamond Cup World Skateboard Championship, held on the weekend in Kimberley, lived up to their promise to make this year's championship bigger and better. A record 10,000 people from all over the globe attended, and the biggest names in skateboarding participated. 19-year-old Naya Houston from California in the USA walked away with 1 million rand by winning the Professional Street World Championship. Another 19-year-old from Morningside, Durban, Braxton Hain, was crowned the best South African Am Street champion. And the dangerous Big Air Gap Best Trick category was won by the youngest ever participant, 
12-year-old Jagger Eaton from Arizona in the USA, winning 50,000 rand. I feel really blessed. I mean, I can't believe like I competed against all these guys, and all these guys are so good, and I looked up to them my whole life, and now I can be able to skate with them in the contest, and to be able to win this trophy here in South Africa is amazing. The announcer from New York, Jefferson Tang, says the standard of the Big Air Gap category is the highest in the world. The level of difficulty is so high that to be able to land every trick, it's virtually impossible because these guys are risking their life and limb. There's probably about a handful of people that would even attempt skating a Big Air like this. I think it's probably under 20 people on the planet Earth that would actually even skate an event like this. The winner of the South African Am Street Championships, 19-year-old Braxter Hain from Morningside in Durban, says skateboarding is taking South Africa by storm. Kids these days are getting so good. So many more kids are also getting involved in it and it's amazing, you know. It's, it's one of the fastest growing sports in the world and it's really cool, yeah. To become pro, that's hectic. These guys are the best skateboarders in the world. It's, it's like magic when you see them skate. I think in the next couple of years, South Africa is going to have a few pros as well. 52 street kids from Durban who are part of the Skateboarding for Hope project were sponsored to attend the championships. 18-year-old William Zonde from Venlo in KwaZulu-Natal says skateboarding has changed his life. We went to the park, we met a guy in Dallas, and you're sitting there in Dallas, while you're sleeping at the whole night, and we told him we've got no place to sleep. And he said he must come to him in the mornings. And we came to him in the morning and then he said, OK, you'll choose. It was just like choosing in a shop and then that's when we started skating. Yeah, it helps. Like, sometimes like when I get stressed about my mom, that, hey, sometimes when I remember, hey, my mom died and stuff. So I just push on my skateboard and I just skate and then everything just go cool about that. One of the Skateboarding for Hope coordinators, Bruce Callahan, says skateboarding is giving hope where there was none. We are no bad kids. And I've worked on the street with street children, with drug addicts, with a whole lot. You've got bad circumstances and they come from bad, bad homes. There are no role models to follow. And the, the kids that we're catering for tend to be the outsiders. They're not the team players. Skating is a very unique thing because what it's doing at the moment, it's very progressive. And with the new South Africa, skating is, is busy morphing and it's morphing into a sport. With an estimate of more than 10,000 people attending the Kimberley Diamond Cup Skateboard Championship, organizers believe the sky is the limit for skateboarding in South Africa. Anel Heidenrich in Kimberley. Cameroonians go to the polls today to vote their representatives in the country's 180-member parliament and 360 council areas. Although the country's elections management body, Elections Cameroon, or ELECAM, has given assurance that assurances that all is set for today's elections, opposition political parties and Cameroon's National Anti-Corruption Commission have been complaining of irregularities that may mar the process. Politicians are accused of fabricating fake voter cards. Our correspondent in Yawunde, Muki Kinzega, reports. Five million voters are expected at polling stations all over Cameroon this Monday. Samuel Fonkam Azu, board chair of the country's elections management body, Elections Cameroon, or ELECAM, says they are ready for the exercise. There are regions where we've uh, distributed 98% of the cards. But of course, remember that those cards that are not distributed will be available in the polling stations on polling day. But opposition political parties have raised fears that the elections may not be transparent. John Fundy 
chairman of the main opposition political party, the Social Democratic Front says they have been victims of violence perpetually from the ruling Cameroon People's Democratic Movement, the CPDM. I don't know whether the beating of my parliamentarian's wife was an act of peace. My member, who was poisoned and he died on the spot, was an act of peace. I am a living witness to the fact that people are producing their own electoral cards. Now, I'm being made to understand that people are already trading on cards. We want to draw the attention of Elekam to this nasty situation. John Fundy is not the only one complaining. Cameroon's National Anti-Corruption Commission, CONAC, says it has received a catalogue of complaints from almost all of the 43 political parties in the race. Reverend Dr. Diodoni Matsigams is chair of the Anti-Corruption Commission. He says they have had so many complaints from different political parties. He adds that some political parties are asking potential voters to return with the ballot papers of their opponents and they will be given a thousand civil francs or two United States dollars and concludes by saying that these are things that are done in the open. According to Cameroon's electoral laws, each political party has ballot papers with a list of its candidates in polling stations. Voters are expected to drop the list they vote for in the ballot box and the ones they do not want in a trash can at the polling booth. But the ruling CPDM has been accused of planning to buy ballot papers of other parties from voters who return with them after voting. President Paul Bia's party has also been accused of producing fake voter cards. Elecam's officer in charge of preparing elections material, Tadeus Menang, told Channel Africa that they had instructed the suspected politicians to withdraw the cards from circulation. It was discovered that this was a misdeed by a local political actor. The matter was brought before the supervisory council and uh, which actor has been instructed to retrieve all the Elecam voters' cards which had been falsified. Tadeus Menang also acknowledged that some people had registered several times, but that his institution had acquired the necessary technology to fish out the names of such people. We have come across cases, the same voters, who go around with several ID cards and who on the basis of these several ID cards register in several places. Such cases come up. It's just to tell you that there are Cameroonians who are trying to beat the system. But that is what Biometry is trying now to help us deal with. With the Biometric Voter Registration System, those cases have been reduced to a very strict minimum. Cameroon's Anti-Corruption Commission has sounded a warning note that those who tamper with the elections will be punished. Jordan Matsigams says there will be meticulous investigations and reports will be sent to the appropriate quarters for sanctions to be meted out. According to the resident representative of the United Nations Development Programme, Najat Rushdie, it is their wish for elections to be free, fair and credible.
go vote. Make sure that those elections come out with outcomes which are really important for the country. Over 12,000 observers and a 1,000 news organs have been accredited for the elections. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. And Musa standing by with the headlines. Good morning. Kenya's security services have arrested another suspect in connection with a deadly four-day Westgate Mall siege. Egypt's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Nabil Fami, has announced parliamentary and presidential elections will be held next year as scheduled in the country's political roadmap. And Cameroon voters head to the polls for legislative and local polls today. And these stories making headlines this hour. Thank you, Anne. Doctors in the Democratic Republic of Congo State Hospitals have decided to end the strike that has taken more than three weeks in that country. The doctors' union decision has come out after the government agreed with them on six of the seven matters brought to its attention. They resumed their work this morning. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The government of the Democratic Republic of Congo is prepared to solve six of the seven matters the doctors' union brought to its attention. A salary increase and a life conditions improvement were among other claims the doctors' national union known as SINAMED, together with the doctors of Congo Union, SIMECO, were discussing with the government officials. Speaking to Channel Africa, the Minister of Health remained too confident when it comes to improving doctors' situation and called on those who are not yet back to resume their work in order to go forward. Minister Felix Kabange Numbi. They came with seven problems. The government agreed with six of them. When you go in negotiation, you can't say that we came with seven problems and we want that seven problem to be solved. I'm very, very confident because we sign uh, trend communicate since one week. I work around uh, in uh, many hospitals here in uh, Kinshasa. I'm coming from Mbandaka in uh, Equatorial province and I have many news from Katanga, from North, South Kivu, from uh, Bakungo, from uh, and many provinces where the physicians are continue to work. Because you know there is uh, a hypocrite element that the doctor must keep the life of patient. And when I walk around the hospitals here in Kinshasa, I realize that there are doctors working for patients in all the hospitals. And the government will continue to pay those who are working, those who are not working now, they must come back and we must continue to improve now the six where we agree together to go forward. We must begin because there is a program to begin today to go forward. After Minister Kabange Numbi's call to striking doctors to go back to work in order to take the agreement forward, the National Doctors Union has announced its members will resume this Monday. 
Meanwhile, the union will take the doctor's claims at a higher level to the office of the President of the Republic, according to the union's executive secretary, Dr. Mankoi Bajoki. The National Office of the Union has decided to take the matter to the office of His Excellency, the President of the Republic, for a better attention. Meanwhile, all the Senate members who work in public hospitals are due to work this Monday, September 30th. Doctors are then resuming, but patients are still in trouble because the other members of staff in different public hospitals here have also decided to go on strike starting this Monday. Jean-Noël Bamoise, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. South Africa's Cape Town Anglican Archbishop Tabo Makoba says he is still reeling from shock after losing a church warden who was shot and killed when a group of militants launched an attack on Kenya's Westgate Mall recently. 57-year-old James Thomas from Cape Town was among those who were killed when the Westgate Mall came under attack. Makoba was participating in the 16th annual Gandhi Peace Walk which took place in the coastal city of Cape Town. Over a thousand people took part in the Gandhi Peace Walk, Mercedes Bassent reports. Archbishop Makoba has condemned the recent attack on civilians at the Kenyan Mall, which left scores of people dead. He says what happened in Kenya and the loss of a South African citizen, who is a fellow church colleague, are still fresh in his memory. I'm still reeling with pain because I have lost uh, a church warden uh, at uh, St. Peter's uh, here, Mr. James Thomas, uh, who will be buried this coming Wednesday. And uh, I indeed uh, condemn uh, with all my being uh, the atrocities that have happened there. But I'm saying revenge is not the way to go. Let's uh, pick up where we have left and uh, strive for peace. Over a thousand people from all walks of life gathered at Seapoint, where the 5 to 10 kilometer Gandhi Peace Walk started. This year's Peace Walk was led by the Archbishop Makoba. Today we're walking to highlight the importance of the values that uh, Gandhi stood for. And I pray that uh, each step uh, that uh, the walkers do will be a step to say uh, forward with peace, and no one should be demeaned by social injustices for Gandhi upheld uh, the, the values that said uh, if you release yourself from slavery, um, all the fetters will go away. So I'm taking part because those are Madiba values and those are the values of Ubuntu. Young, old women from different backgrounds also participated in the walk. Um, well, it's such a beautiful day, so I decided to come out and do the, the Gandhi walk. And it also helps to melt away all those federals. I'm put the past stage because I feel that I need to be get fit and I need to give something to the other poor people as well. It's a pain in a walker for Gandhi. I, I believe in him. I'm walking because my friend said that if she's walking five kilometers, she, she won't be able to speak. And since I, since I can't speak at, at other times, I will use this time to speak. It's for charity, it's to commemorate Gandhi. The Gandhi Peace Walk coincided with the launch of Older Persons Week. Archbishop Makoba had a special message for all senior citizens. My message is, uh, come on oldies, you've done your bit. 
and uh, don't tire uh, in teaching us uh, the good that you have done uh, because we also want to get old and leave a positive, powerful mark uh, here on earth. Cape Town Anglican Archbishop Tabo Makoba ending that report by Mercedes Percent. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Rahul Gandhi, the scion of India's Nehru Gandhi dynasty, has attacked his own government for an executive order which will allow convicted lawmakers to stay in office or contest elections. The startling move has sparked a political storm and put his ruling Congress party in a dilemma. Rana Sen reports. The government facing a string of corruption scandals passed the ordinance, reversing a Supreme Court verdict that tainted politicians cannot hold power in the country where 30% of federal and state legislators have criminal backgrounds. Gandhi, the 43-year-old ruling Congress party vice president, startled the country when he stormed into a press conference and dropped a bombshell. Personally feel that what our government has done, as far as this ordinance is concerned, is wrong. I'll tell you what my opinion on the ordinance is. My opinion on the ordinance is that it's complete nonsense and that it should be torn up and thrown out. That's my opinion, my personal opinion on the ordinance. The outburst left his party red-faced as it came at a time when Prime Minister Manmohan Singh was in the United States. Even opposition BJP party spokeswoman Nirmala Sitaraman called Gandhi's action childish. The Prime Minister of the country, the party has complete respect. I'm sorry. I am from the Bharatiya Janata Party, opposition party, but I am saying the country's prime minister when he goes out completely, at least at that time, let us understand, wait for him to come, then you have your squabbles. The Congress seeks a third term in office and sensing the damage young Gandhi's action can cause. Foreign Minister Salman Khushid tried to find logic in the rant. Politics, you have to balance principles and pragmatism. There will always be, and this is, I think, our good fortune in our leadership, someone saying, Please watch the principle. Don't give in too much to pragmatism of, of daily politics. Remain uh, adhered to principles. And I, I think we should acknowledge with gratitude that Mr. Rahul Gandhi has said this. And prominent politician Somnath Chatterjee backed the young Gandhi. Son, grandson and great-grandsons of prime ministers saying he perhaps meant no harm. It's a matter between his party and his government. He says his party's view is this. Therefore, instead of saying it inside that, he has said it outside in a press conference, I take it. The government may feel embarrassed, certainly, because it has recommended the promulgation of an ordinance. Now, in response to that, if uh, the vice president of the Congress party says it is uh, meaningless or it's a nonsense, it should not have been done, I think he has the courage of conviction to say that the, his government had gone wrong. Gandhi is his party's star campaigners for elections in May, but his bizarre attack deeply embarrassed his mother, Sonia Gandhi, the architect of the controversial ordinance which he now wants to be thrown into the trash can. Reporting from New Delhi, I am Rana Sen.
For the first time, a ministerial meeting was held on the margins of the United Nations General Assembly annual debate to discuss the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender LGBT individuals. The UN LGBT core group includes countries such as France, Netherlands, Norway, the US, Brazil, Argentina, Croatia, El Salvador, Israel, Japan and the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. The group group issued a declaration pledging not just to protect LGBT rights, but also to garner homophobic and transphobic attitudes in society at large, including through public education campaigns. Speaking to UN Radio's Rocio Franco, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay, hailed this step as a historic first for the United Nations. Well, we've just come out from a meeting of eight or nine ministers who all signed a declaration to safeguard the human rights of lesbian, gay, transgender and uh, intersex community. And this is historic. They all said it was historic. It's never happened at the UN before. Civil society has been struggling with these issues. And finally, it's reached the UN following the study that was done before the Human Rights Council. And this is a development that I hope to encourage and see other countries also joining. Could you please tell us what is the situation still in the world? You said that there are advantages, but there's still some challenges. What are those challenges? Well, some countries clearly have adopted laws to protect the human rights of everyone to end discrimination and hate propaganda. But others are going backwards, I should say, coming up with regressive laws. Some prosecute people just for loving persons of the same sex. In some countries, there's a death penalty for this. And individuals who commit violence and harassment against gays and lesbians are not prosecuted. So the situation, I would say, is really bad. And it's high time we made this very, very strong call for the universal respect of the human rights of all persons. The Universal Declaration doesn't say human rights for all except for gay, lesbian, and transgender people. What would you say to governments that are still opposing this kind of movement to protect the rights of these people? What I'm saying is, let me bring the free and equal campaign which is a campaign to educate people on the human rights of people and also in the process make known how much they suffer at the hands of governments, at the hands of highly prejudiced people. So my message is support the education campaign at least. And I know that many more countries are open to that. This is the first time the United Nations has started a worldwide campaign to educate people. And I hope that we will eliminate prejudices end discrimination and secure the rights of LGBT people. United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights Navi Pillay talking to UN Radio's Rocio Franco. We now cross over to Wisani Matebula for our economics news. Good morning, Lulu. The strike by members of South Africa's trade union, NUMSA, in the component sector is set 
to intensify this week after talks uh, with the retail motor industry organization deadlocked again. The union is demanding a double-digit wage salary increase. The strike has crippled production at auto assembly plants such as uh, Mercedes-Benz and Volkswagen in the Eastern Cape province. NUMSA's General Secretary Ivan Jim. One of the things that as the leadership of the union we're contemplating and we're beginning to talk to leadership in government to say if indeed that the bill has been passed around labor broking and um, the issue of equal pay for work of equal value, can we be able to have a discussion with the leadership of government to find out where is that process? The employers are saying, listen, you're pushing the strike, but this matter is in parliament. If the bill is passed, will comply with the law in relation to what comes out. Nigeria's central bank has announced new measures to tackle money laundering. It says it's weakening the Naira currency and risk uh, pushing up inflation, and uh, which it suspects is linked to early political campaigning for 2015 elections. The central bank's new measures do not affect the $250,000 weekly limit for foreign exchange dealer sales. However, dealers will now have to obtain prior approval to import foreign exchange banknotes and recipients of uh, proceeds from international money transfer fair such as Western Union and MoneyGram will be paid only in Nairas. And uh, meanwhile, about 100,000 barrels of oil a day are being stolen in Nigeria by organized syndicates who bribe security officials to look the other way, costing the West African country an estimated $3.7 billion a year. Kenyan economists say the country's retail and tourism sectors will be the hardest hit by latest uh, terrorism attacks. The upmarket uh, Westgate shop more shopping mall in Nairobi was attacked by Somali-based Al-Shabaab militants, a terrorist group linked to Al-Qaeda. The attack has left almost 70 people dead and hundreds injured. Economists say the tragic incident will probably run into the millions for the economy of Kenya. George Kosimbei, an economist at uh, the Kenyatta University in Nairobi. Growth and inclusive development is important for all countries. That's according to Prime Minister Men Mohan Sain of uh, India, addressing the UN General Assembly at the weekend. Sain has said uh, the stage for the post-2015 development agenda is especially important as they deal with a lingering slowdown and continuing volatility in the financial markets. He says they have uh, imposed the disproportionate heavy costs on developing countries and especially their vulnerable groups. Growth and inclusive development are naturally important for all our countries. They require a supportive international economic environment, enhanced investment flows, including from multilateral development banks, transfer of technology, and an open multilateral trading regime. But the problems of over a billion people living in abject poverty around the world. Financial indicators, uh, the South African rent trading at 10.06 to the US dollar, trading at 0.62 British pound and at 0.74 to the euro. Also trading at 8.48 Botswana pulas and at 5.27 Zambian kwaches. Commodities gold $1,338, platinum $1,414 a fine ounce and the price of uh, Brent crude oil at $107.45 per barrel. And that's your economics news.
Thank you, Wisani. We now cross over to Figle Lingwati for our sports update. Now, sports update this hour. We're starting off with rugby news. Springbok coach Henneke Meyer says he's satisfied and happy with his team's performance in beating Australia 28-8 at Newlands in Cape Town in the weekend. The win ensured that the Springboks remain in contention for the Castle Lago Rugby Championship title going into the last test against New Zealand in Johannesburg this week. Yeah, I'll start off. You know, uh, this team's really been blessed. I'm really thankful for that. Um, you know, I think it's a great sign of a team that uh, I think it's a record win at, at Newlands. And you're playing against quite desired and you and you win and you're not that happy. But again, I'm very proud of the guys. You know, I was really worried about this game. Um, you can easily look past this game to the next game. And uh, the Wallabies is a quality side. I must say it's great playing in Newlands, but you usually don't score a lot of tries. I think in the last six games uh, against Australia, it was only seven tries. So uh, really happy with the performance. A few areas that we need to work on. And obviously, we didn't get the bonus point. But I think the great thing is we're in with a chance. And that's the only thing I've asked for the team, that uh, with one game left, um, we've got a lot of respect for the All Blacks, but uh, if you have a chance, you're still in the competition and uh, very happy with the win. Even though the Springboks failed to score four tries to gain a bonus point, Springbok captain Jean de Villard says his team's primary aim was to win the game and make sure they can still win the competition next week. Yeah, I think we wanted to, to sort of win the game first. Uh, you know, that was the attitude throughout, throughout the week and we wanted to... We want to build a, a, a sort of comfortable lead, and, and from there we, um, you know, we could attack more. Um, we managed to get that right. We managed to get a, a 20-point lead, and it, it gave us 40 minutes to to score two tries. Unfortunately, we couldn't do that. We did we did create a lot of opportunities. And again, as I said Friday, uh, you know, at the press conference, I think for us today the challenge was not not the scoreboard, but but the way that we played. And still, we're not happy with areas of our game, but we beat Australia by 20 points. If you gave that to us at the beginning of the year, we definitely would have taken it. So um, we're still in this competition. We've got an opportunity now, and um, and that's a great thing. It's uh, you know we've we've won we've won four out of four out of five games uh, in the rugby championship, and now it comes down to to one more game, and we'd like to win that one as well. In netball news, Proteas coach Elise Gotze is confident that she will put up a strong team to face England and Trinidad and Tobago in the netball Tri-Nation series to be held in Port Elizabeth at the end of next month. She was speaking after losing the third and last test match against England on Friday. The South African senior netball national team lost all their matches in England and it's a state that doesn't sit well with Gotze. I will totally be satisfied the day that we beat England. That, but at the moment, I must take the bits and pieces of brilliance that we had during these three tests and um, take that with us and build on that. I have no doubt in my mind that this South African side and with the players that is waiting in South Africa that's injured, that we'll get the right team. Um, I think this team did extremely well. Um, but that we'll get the right team and mix for England in South Africa next month. Finally, with golf news, England's David Howell has won the Alfred Daniel Links Championship at St Andrews for his first European Tour victory in seven years. The former Ryder Cup star finished on 23 under par to edge out Peter Ayland in a playoff. Nick Dyer reports.
Howell was once the world number nine. His last win came at the PGA Championship, the tour's flagship event at Wentworth, and he's known too for beating Tiger Woods down the stretch in Shanghai that same year. For a variety of reasons, his game deserted him, but over the last year, he's repeatedly put himself into good positions. Here, a closing 67 led to extra holes, and at the second of them, his birdie defeated the disconsolate American who'd led into the final round. Shane Lowry had a victory chance, but shares third with Tom Lewis, whose closing 64 ensures he keeps his playing rights for next season. Howell, in the meantime, can look forward to champions events, a position in the Dubai finale, and heads the Ryder Cup points list. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. South Africa's first ever state visit to Senegal this week in an attempt to boost the low levels of trade between Pretoria and West Africa's political and economic powerhouse. And doctors in the Democratic Republic of Congo State Hospitals have decided to end a strike that has taken more than three weeks in that country. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Bumgard, technical producer Maria Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Baby Yo by Robbie Malinga.